Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Yeah, so lovely to be with you um, sharing this morning. So we're several weeks into our series uh, on the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. And I thought it'd be good to, again, just briefly give the historical context um, and really important to point out, um, as others who've shared in the past few weeks have said, that when we talk about Israel during the time period in this book, that that doesn't relate to the current country of Israel and all the tragedies and violence uh, that are currently going on there and around the area in Gaza that we pray will come to an end soon. So just remember that as, we, as you hear me talk about Israel multiple times. Um, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were descended from the 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes of Israel that you often read about in the Bible. God made a promise to those 12 tribes that they would inhabit a certain area of land. And after Moses led them out of captivity in Egypt and they'd wandered the desert for 40 years, they finally started occupying that land that God had promised them. And that promise was closely linked to their relationship with him. God would protect them from their enemies as long as they stayed faithful to him. Many years after that, now the people who referred to Israel in the book of Hosea at this time, they've been trying to figure out things on their own. Those 12 united tribes have split apart. You've got a northern 10 and a half tribes. They've separated from the tribe of Judah in the south. And actually, by doing that, by making that separation, they've disconnected from Jerusalem in the south, the capital where the temple was. That was the place where the people would go to offer sacrifices to the Lord in exchange for all the things they've done wrong. That area is now no longer in their territory. That focal point uh, is is gone, and they have to figure out ways of practicing their spiritual beliefs that are different from that. And they go about setting up temples um, to other gods as part of that. They also have to figure out their political relationships with other nations. And they basically thought, not going to have any problems doing this. This is going to be easy. They'd pick out a new king, or a new king would emerge, and there'd be the short-lived hope that things um, would be good. But they didn't work out, and that king would be removed, or they'd be assassinated. And over the course of 200 years, they had, I think I calculated, around 19 different kings. And you might be able to tell that a nation is a little bit chaotic when there's frequent changes of leadership, like, you know, five different prime ministers in seven years. (laughs) So there was this cycle of behaviour again and again where they would um, go different ways. They would uh, worship other gods. They would um, liaise with other nations. And there's this cycle of repeated behaviour of keep making the same mistakes and not seeming to be able to sort themselves out. Something needed to change. Someone external needed to step in. And that's where you hear a lot of the Old Testament prophets. And they were meant to be a wake-up call from God to his people, a challenge to change course from the path of destruction that they were set upon. Something like this, come on, remember who you were meant to be. Remember what God had told you about good ways to live that would be fruitful, but would also be a blessing to those around you. The prophets would often use uh, emotive language to try and compel their listeners to heed their warnings. They'd use imagery to portray the severity of their message. And as you've heard in the last few weeks, if you've been here in this series, Hosea's communication was even more extreme. His own relationship with his unfaithful wife and his children were a painful and stark depiction of how far the people of 
Israel had fallen in their covenant relationship with God. What a crazy sacrifice and commitment for Hosea to what God was telling him. He would allow himself to go through that just to demonstrate to others how broken they were and how much God still wanted to pursue them. So we're now uh, in the second half of Hosea. Uh, I'm going to be dipping in and around um, chapters 7 through 10. So if you've got a Bible, just leave your, your thumb kind of in that section and we'll be um, touching on a few verses. We won't be reading all of it. Um, but by this point, we've moved on from that, powerful, uh, from that painful personal metaphor for Hosea. And he starts to use poetic language to further emphasize the situation that Israel was in. Um, in chapter 7, Hosea describes in detail the different patterns of bad behavior and habits that the people had got into. So in verses 1 and 2, he describes how they'd been lying and stealing. In verses 3 to 7, he says they've fallen into sexual immorality and drunkenness. And in verses 8 to 10, he explains how they've been led astray by other nations. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 7 says this, his hair is sprinkled with grey, but he does not notice. So I just want to take a small point uh, to, to, em to speak to some people in the room. It's a very small demographic. Um, if you're a guy with a beard and you're in your 30s or 40s, um, if you've got crazy Ramdas Hasia jeans, maybe even your 50s, you'll wake up one day, you'll be getting ready, just about to go out the door, check in the mirror, and you'll look and you'll go, is that toothpaste or is that grey? <laughs> It's happened to me, and the point, it does relate, the point that it's making here is that we get old without realising it. We notice grey in our beard and we don't even realise that we've become old. And the people of Israel had not realised how far they'd gone away from God. Verse 10 says, Israel's arrogance testifies against him. Verse 10 of chapter 7, Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God. Their pride is preventing them from realising how far they've actually fallen. Verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. Just to quickly say, Ephraim is one of the ten tribes in the north. It was the dominant tribe um, of the ten remaining ones. So um, Hosea sometimes uses Ephraim to describe that whole group. So they were like a frantic bird flitting between allies, not only not faithful to God, but constantly changing allegiances and actually risking destruction upon themselves because no nation could ever trust them. Then in the final few verses of chapter 7, Hosea describes how the people uh, despair, but they don't sincerely turn to God for help. Verse 14 says this, They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds appealing to their gods, but they turn away from me. 15 to 16 says, they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the most high. But God longs to save his people. At the end of chapter 6, 11 to 7 verse 1 says, whenever I would restore the fortunes to my people, whenever I would heal Israel, Chapter 7, verse 13 says, I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. I long to redeem them. What can God do when his people look for help in all the wrong places? The next chapter, chapter 8, describes how Israel will suffer the consequences of their choices. Um, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 says this, 
Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. The people cry out. They know God. They acknowledge him. Uh, And that word appears throughout the Bible and throughout Hosea particularly. That Hebrew word is uh, yada. And it's actually thought to be uh, one of the possible origins, as you might think, for the name of the Star Wars character Yoda, who's very knowledgeable. Uh, Yada. Um, uh, It's it's a theory. Um, And while it's translated in the NIV as God, we acknowledge you, it can also be thought of as God, we, we experience you. You know, in that sense of we submit to the knowledge of who God is and we actually do something about it. But the point is here, the people weren't doing that. They were paying lip service to God, but also hedging their bets and looking to other gods for help as well. God is warning them that they were, they've become complacent about their relationship with him. They were meant to be in an exclusive relationship with him. That's what they'd promised. And just as men and women promise with their partners on their wedding day, our relationship will be special, unique. I vow not to love anyone else physically or emotionally in the same way that I love you. Israel had made that promise to God that he would be their God and there would be no other. And God in return said he would look after them because they had submitted themselves to his care. But the people decided they wanted to have their cake and eat it. They could entangle themselves with other nations and their false idols without jeopardizing their relationship with God. Like a husband thinking he can date other women while still maintaining a healthy relationship with his wife. Or how might a spouse respond to unfaithful behavior like that? They could allow it to continue happening, but without any repentance from that unfaithful partner, the marriage would likely deteriorate further. Or they could separate themselves from this relationship and look for a new partner. Or the third option, they could challenge the behavior of their unfaithful partner and hope that they would accept the correction and recommit to their relationship. Well, after many years of this unfaithfulness, God decides that this can't continue anymore. And Hosea describes what the consequences of their actions will be. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 7 says, They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Over many years, they've sown these evil practices, and God had protected them from the consequences of those actions. But eventually, they would reap the results of those decisions. As we've been looking at the book of Hosea, we've been, uh, you've been invited to consider the different characteristics of God that have been represented in it, all under the banner of the title uh, of uh, the, the God of Relentless Love. That's the title of the series. But through each week, we've been looking at different characteristics. We're looking at the God of mercy, the God of redemption, the God of judgment, the God of faithfulness, And this fifth week now, the God of discipline. And these aren't contradictory personality traits of God, but they're actually different parts of his character that can be seen as we adjust our perspective of how we look at him. And today we're going to look at how God demonstrates his love to us by disciplining us. And I want to look through uh, five different aspects of discipline. Uh, Firstly, discipline isn't constant. Secondly, discipline is a last resort. Third, discipline is a choice. 
Fourth discipline is for a purpose. And fifth discipline is relational. So I have a little prop here to try and make my point. Um, so discipline isn't constant. So it, I'm saying, uh, I think with a lot of these, you see discipline is essentially course correction. So if you're in a boat and you're heading in a wrong direction uh, and someone pushes you away, or if you're a child riding on a bike and you start to veer off course, you might be nudged back in the right direction. But that course correction is, is temporary, only lasts for a certain amount of time. So if I'm heading towards the edge, there's a temporary course correction. I'm not being steered the whole time because otherwise I don't have any control over where I'm going. But as I'm going, there's a nudge to be corrected from that course. So it isn't constant. And similarly, the people of Israel hadn't been constantly corrected with every wayward king. God had been giving them time and the opportunity to turn back from their unfaithfulness. And sometimes this might be our experience as well. We're given the freedom to mess up our lives, our finances, our relationships, our health, uh, and in a way that God hasn't intended for us. And we don't always experience the painful consequences of those decisions right away. And this can be hard to understand sometimes, but it's part of how God wants to be in relationship with us, giving the freedom to choose his will or not. So discipline isn't constant. Uh, discipline is a last resort. So if we go back to the idea of uh, course correction, if someone's veering off their intended course for a short period of time, you know, if this car is heading towards the, the edge, um, you might think, oh, I'll leave it because they've got time to correct and go around. But as they start to go closer to the edge, it becomes more imperative that you correct their decision. So it's a last resort. It becomes kinder to intervene rather than allow themselves to go off the route so far that it's impossible to get back on track. And after many decades of turning away from God's will, this is where the people of Israel had got to. God had decided enough was enough and he needed to try to push them back on course. Third, discipline is a choice. It's reaching a boundary on our journey and being pushed in the opposite direction that we want to head in. So again, this is your heading that way. I want to go this way, but someone's pushing you in a different direction. You have to choose to accept that. Or if I'm being nudged away, I can choose to keep trying to pursue the, act the direction that I wanted to head in. Do we realise the error of our ways and allow ourselves to be pushed back on track? Or do we push even harder in the direction that we were heading in? Hosea was warning Israel they were on a path towards danger and that they should turn back to God. And really sadly, they didn't know. And they were eventually taken into exile in Assyria and never returned to the land that they previously had. It is hard to receive correction sometimes to be told you messed up and that you should have done something differently. Um, as a child at school, I was generally quite well behaved and a bit of a perfectionist with my work. So whenever I got told off or got something wrong, I always took it to heart. And actually, even as an adult, when someone corrects me, I still struggle not to feel hurt or let it plague me for hours or days even. Uh, recently uh, at work, I missed a really important call with a customer. It happens very rarely. I lost track of time. Um, I forgot about it. I, I just didn't um, dial into this call. And on this occasion, it was actually a really important call. Uh, and my boss pointed out to me that this may have repercussions for how that customer perceives their relationship with us as a customer. I felt terrible. I apologized to everyone multiple times. 
The challenge for me was not just to make excuses or to blame other people. There were colleagues who should have been helping support me on that call, but they weren't there. But to take responsibility for what I had done wrong and to make sure that it didn't happen again. A discipline is a choice. Uh, fourthly, discipline is for a purpose. So if we choose to accept this course correction, this discipline, then we're also acknowledging that we believe it has some purpose. That the person trying to correct us knows better than us the direction we're heading in. So again, if I'm going in that direction, the person knows that I'm about to fall off the edge there. I have to trust their correction, knowing that they know better than me about where I'm heading. If we accept that that person knows better than us, we'll accept their correction and allow ourselves to learn from the experience of someone wiser than us. We now know where the edge is. We now know where the danger is, and we can avoid it next time. The more faith we have in the person correcting us, the easier it will be to accept that disciplining. And the more we allow ourselves to be disciplined, the easier it will be to receive next time. It's intended to train and develop us. And that's why we always also refer to um, things we know really well as discipline, if you know this discipline, if you know that discipline. So fifth one is discipline is relational. There's no point preventing someone from heading towards danger if you don't care about the person. If I don't care about this, I'll kick it away. <laughs> Someone's now feeling quite sorry for that guy. I think it's safe. I did also mean to apologise that if your child's upstairs and that's their favourite toy, that they're probably having a bad morning. <laughs> it's relational. You care about the thing that you're correcting, and that's why you want to protect it. And actually, most passages in the Bible about discipline talk about how a father disciplines their children, not how a military general corrects their soldiers, not how a teacher corrects their students or a master corrects their servant. The Bible says that how God disciplines us is like how a father disciplines his children out of love and concern for their well-being. And there's a few verses that say that that I want to um, read out. But I just want to say if that's not been your experience with your um, earthly father, then um, uh, I... Um yeah, just I feel that pain for you. I don't want you to feel like this is anything specific for you, but hopefully you felt some kind of fatherly discipline that is healthy, even if it wasn't from your biological father. But Deuteronomy 8, uh, verses 5 to 6 says this, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. Hebrews 12, verses 7 to 11 says this, Ensure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So when God is preparing to first lead his people into the promised land during the time of Moses, he makes a covenant with them, what we've referred to already, and a covenant is a promise, a vow, 
Uh, like marriage, like Pastor Poy described last week, how this covenant is like a master uh, marriage vows that people make to their spouses on the wedding day, as I've already alluded to earlier. We say, in sickness or in health, for richer, for poorer, no matter what the challenges or circumstances, I'm going to stick with it. But the people of Israel had not kept their side of this covenant agreement. They had not treated it as a long-term precious agreement. Um, and I realised their attitude uh, about commitments was a little bit like me with my, my uh, subscriptions, the different subscriptions. Uh, so I don't know what you're like. I love TV. Um, there's lots of different shows I want to see. And unfortunately, they're all across different platforms uh, that I can't watch all the time. So I'll switch and jump between them. Um, I'll, there's a show on Netflix. I'll subscribe to Netflix for a little while. I'll watch all the shows I want to own. Then I'll cancel the subscription. I'll subscribe to Apple TV for a bit. I'll watch some of those shows and then I'll cancel that. So I just flip between them uh, and get whichever ones I want and then move on to the next one but with my music which I also love I have Spotify I have had Spotify for I think 14 or 15 years not flitting between any uh, different subscriptions for music uh, I have my playlist my favorite albums all the songs I've saved over all those years and um, I can play it on my phone in the car I can just speak to the speakers in my home and they come on and play whichever song I want I don't have any CDs or mp3 players which the younger people in the room don't even know what they mean <laughs> and actually for me if I was going to terminate that agreement that contract that I have uh, then I would be distraught I could no longer listen to music I love whenever I want so the people of Israel didn't value their commitment to God. They were the video subscriptions. They were flitting between different things, trying to get the best of what they wanted between these different gods, instead of just committing to the one and trusting that there was nothing else better up there. Do we sometimes find ourselves doing something similar when things are not going as we like? We give up on praying to God and instead look to self-help books, influencers, podcasters, or anything else to help solve our problems. As we go through the book of Hosea, maybe we're tempted uh, to just look at how foolish the people of Israel were to ignore their relationship with God. But the reality is that we all regularly do the same kind of things in big or small ways. We all have moments where we decide that we know best and we ignore God's instructions for our lives. And that's what the Bible calls sin. We've all been unfaithful to God, either intentionally or unintentionally. And really, we all deserve the consequences of turning our back on God. But, but Jesus, when Jesus came to the world, he showed us how to live a holy life and then sacrificed himself for our unholiness. And he introduced a new covenant. And it's really interesting, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah actually foresaw this. Um, in Hosea chapter 9, verse 9, it says, God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Jeremiah, he prophesies, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. It's almost the exact opposite. Jeremiah was looking forward to a time when our sins would all be paid for through the debt that Jesus paid. And our sins, everything we've done wrong, will be remembered no more. We can enter now into that agreement and trust that God will one day completely fulfill it when Jesus returns and all trace of wrong and evil will be wiped from the planet and even from our hearts. 
If I could just encourage the band to come up. I just want to leave uh, you with one last thing. Um, what do we do until then, until Jesus returns from our hearts? I want to leave you with a verse from Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. It says, sow righteousness for yourself. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. I'll read that one more time. Sow righteousness for yourself. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness upon you. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.